Welcome to another episode of El Cafecito. My name is Leonardo Casenza. I'm your host for the second season. And Viva la Revolución! Oh, that was a terrible Spanish. Go ahead. <laughs> Hi everyone, it's Anna. And the 60s weren't just only groovy. Hello Cuba, my name is Raquel. And the Cuban Revolution had a great influence over the continent. Boring! Boring! Don't <laughs> <laughs> well, think about it. <laughs> Introduction okay. to LAS 101. <laughs> we're, we're, we're here together again um, to talk about um, the 1960s. Our idea is, um, at least my idea, came from um, just the beginning of the election of, of Jair Bolsonaro this this uh, this year, and he represents this this new conservative wave in Brazil that is nostalgic for the the military dictatorship that happened in 1964 and um, historical moments and um, historical issues keep on being, being brought back by the, the president and he makes these embarrassing and astonishing comments about stuff. Um, and, the, and then maybe uh, the idea here is to, to maybe debate the 60s as a point of change, as a point of the between the new and the old in Latin America and how these, uh, and how these, these, these great movements for change in Latin America have echoed nowadays, right, in the political discourse that we see in 2019, and how it informs this, this form of political discourse, like I said, in, in Jair Bolsonaro. I guess we, we can start. We can start with the Cuban Revolution, right, in 1959. That was a, a major, a major uh, event. And so I want to know, like, so how's, how did it happen? How's the Cuban Revolution? Why is it important for um, Latin America? Come on, Raquel. <laughs> um, so yeah, well. Uh, you the big question. Who? Um, so well, I think it's important to talk about um, Fidel Castro and the role that uh, Che Guevara had uh, in the Cuban Revolution. Um, Fidel Castro, at that time, he was a socialist. He wanted to, and I think that he's uh, with with the movement. I think it was called. Okay, we can do it. Yeah, no, the 26th of Julio. 26th of Julio. I had a flag. 26th of Julio. I had a 26th of Julio flag in my, in my room. So yeah, um, the role that Castro and, and Che Guevara had with um, the course that Cuba, or like the politics in Cuba were going to take place in future years. And um, Castro was especially against the power that the American or like the United States companies had over Cuba. Uh, some people claim that Cuba at that time was kind of like Las Vegas of, of the United States or was like these, like the backyard of, um, of the United States as like many people um, were to like these fancy hotels in, in Cuba and many uh, businessmen in, in the States had power over the different companies and uh, corporations in, in Cuba. So it was mainly um, a thing that the revolution started as a position of uh, Cubans against this power that the United States had over the land, the people, um, the commerce of the country, the market, and uh, the power in politics because uh, also many people claim that um, the president was uh, being like manipulated by the United States. So it was this whole movement against this US intervention in 
Thank you. And this reminds us of why we started to pick the Cuban Revolution in the first place. It's because of its wider importance in the Cold War, and that's something that has to be framed um, because the 1960s in Latin America was very much influenced by this battle of ideologies that's happening during the Cold War that we all know between um, the communist camp and, and the capitalist Western camp represented by the U.S. And in, in the 1960s, you had a, a quite clear policy change with uh, the election of Kennedy um, towards um, using the, the U.S. using um, Latin America as literally their, their political and economic backyard. And um, Latin America was considered the zone of influence by, by the U.S. And that's why it supported many uh, military dictatorships and then following that, not only um, politically support, supported them, but also um, economically and, demo- uh, and, and, and diplomatically. Diplomatically. Yeah. With the Cuban Revolution, you had finally um, springing up in the backyard. Of course, you had different other movements. Um, in 1954, you had this important president in Guatemala called Jacobo Arbenz, who was also from power, also um, by U.S. influence. Basically, he was uh, he claimed the lands from the United Fruit Company, and then uh, he through this nationalization process. And despite wanting to um, pay the Americans back, the Americans refused, uh, ousted him from power. So these movements were happening um, and springing up um, around Central America at the time. And uh, the Cuban Revolution was just a reflection of, of, of these, these, forms of, these forms of oppression that were seen uh, in the region. And mainly because of, of the land question here. So in the case of Fidel Castro, um, the, the the land of tobacco farmers mostly, um, how they were, uh, the, his objective was to be able to distribute, redistribute this land, and not only that, but um, remove Cuba from, as he said, the, the kind of the U.S. sphere of influence, influence, and by really 1959 he wasn't a, still a self-declared like communist, only in 1961 that he actually def- declared himself openly to the world as a Marxist-Leninist. Um, but still, he was um, Fidel and Che. They, they they led this movement, this counter movement of imperialism in the region. So that's why we start with the Cuban Revolution because it's 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 the pivot point. It's the it's the the point of international uh, projection in, in Latin America um, for the struggles of these of the of the marginalized. And in many ways, in in Brazil, uh, the Cuban Revolution sends as Hobbes will say that since shockwaves um, in Brazil because and really in, in the whole world because you had as Hobbes says you has you have these uh, uh, tropical like bearded hairy men with like big guns <laughs> conquering the uh, taking over the government and, and making sure that society is fair and prosperous so this had a lot of appeal and I can see how it has a lot of appeal and as it has appeal um, nowadays right um, people wearing Che Guevara t-shirts, for example, usually yeah. it's like the, the stereotype that you have like the, the young <laughs> radical anarchist boy wearing the t-shirt. Um, or the Cuban tourist. <laughs> or the Cuban tourist. Um, and so, so, so the Cuban Revolution had this amazing impact in the Latin American left. This idea that um, we can finally combat this, this larger imperial power like, uh, like the US, even coming from such a small island like Cuba. Yeah, so 1961, I found it so interesting. You said Castro didn't declare himself like a full-blown communist until 1961. In 1961, John F. Kennedy, he declared the Alliance for Progress. 
um, with Latin America. And basically, it was an alliance um, asking Latin American countries to pledge a total of $80 billion. Um, and so this would become, you know, be shown through an annual increase in per capita income, elimination of adult illiteracy, establishment of dem democratic governments, um, price stability, equitable income distribution, all these land reforms, economic and social reforms, and all of this was supposed to be reflected through the efforts of new democracies in Latin America. Um, and I want to read you guys a quote actually from JFK himself, which I want to see your thoughts on. So this is 1961, after the Cuban Revolution and all this stuff is happening. So he says, We propose to complete the revolution of the Americas, to build a hemisphere where all men can hope for a suitable standard of living, and all can live out their lives in dignity and in freedom. To achieve this goal, political freedom must accompany material progress. Let us once again transform the American continent into a vast crucible of revolutionary ideas and efforts. A tribute to the power of the creative energies of free men and women. An example to all the world that liberty and progress walk hand in hand. Let us once again awaken our American revolution until it guides the struggles of people everywhere, not with an imperialism of force or fear, but the rule of courage and freedom and hope for the future of the man. So I know the lines of progress. This was stated before it happened. And in Colombia, this alliance honestly just led to economic crises. And by the mid 60s, a whole lot of political instability. Um, what did the American interferences in Colombia consist of in this time? So to understand all this we have to go back a little bit. So right before the 60s Colombia was going through an era of violence literally called La Violencia. It happened after the assassination of a liberal uh, candidate called Gaitan in the 40s and ever from the 40s up until the late 50s there was severe bipartisan violence from both sides. Um, so, and in order to keep peace, there's a military junta, and then the conservatives and the liberals decided to create a national front, a coalition, where every four years they would take turns in power, and this would last for 16 years. And this was heavily influenced by this Alliance for Progress from JFK. Uh, and the whole point of this was for economic gain. So, countries had to pledge an incredible amount of money to, to realize these projects that the Alliance for Progress wanted. Um, and that put Colombia in severe debt. And so there was already unrest because people were complaining about that these this new coalition weren't really attacking the root of the social problems in Colombia. And unemployment rose to like 10% in 1962. So there was crazy economic crisis as a result. Um, and since only two political parties were actually recognized in government, that led to more unrest um, with the marginalized groups in society. Who were the farmers, the rural? And that's when we see the rise of these communist enclaves that are self-governing and self-defensive in Latin America. I mean, in Colombia, sorry. So I guess the most like prominent one in Colombia was in 1962, Manuel Marulanda. He became the leader of Las Farc later on. He declared an independent republic called Marquetalia. This was a region where his group had kind of, his communist group had control. So this obviously met resistance from the, the government of Colombia. You know, they feared a Cuban-style revolution, yet they continued fighting. And in uh, 1962, the U.S. sent a special survey team to investigate what was going on. And 
and Commander General William P. Yarborough actually visited and he created a plan called the Plan Naso in 1962, you know, to kind of restore stability and reassimilate these regions into Colombia's government. Um, well, in 1964, like 16,000 Colombian troops like stormed that area and there was only 50 guys who were like defending it. So obviously they never won, but they retreated back into the mountain and that's when Las FARC, so the Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, you know, got created. Um, and that's kind of the beginning of the civil war in Colombia. Uh, it's, it's really interesting to see how these, uh, these social effects have been spread around the region around the same time because mm -hmm. in the early 1960s um, uh, the Brazilian peasants were trying to establish what they called peasant leagues and there was different kinds, it's a, it's a general term, an umbrella term for different kinds of peasant organizations that were being set up in Brazil at the time and they were still very loose uh, democratically oriented organizations um, that were being increasingly connected to the marginalized movements. So, for example, the political parties that are usually um, concentrated in the urban areas, they were attempting to make connections with the peasants through these peasant leagues. And not only that, there was an increase in radicalization around the left. So you had this movement of intellectuals into the into peasant areas, and also um, peasants making this inter into like this this connection with other forms of social movements. So um, it's as if the political parties and the peasant leagues also um, were in, in in coexistence with these other social movements, and they were all emerging around the same time, bubbling around the same time. So the peasant leagues they existed themselves, and then intellectuals were coming into them yeah. or the intellectuals yeah. were creating them no 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 the intellectuals were coming into them okay. so then and that and that represented not only a political move but also a cultural move in many ways um uh for example as it as i as we said um the cinema novo movement in brazil which is uh uh which was really the the first big artistic drive in terms of filmmaking in brazil began in the 1960s also as this attempt of intellectuals usually connected to the left and to urban classes um, attempting to move and show the Brazi the real like Brazilian reality um, to Brazilians by taking their handheld cameras into the Brazilian Northeast or into uh, uh, rural er regions or rural areas in, in Sao Paulo for example so you had this this major attempt of, of the urban centers to move and the political forces, the mainly like left-wing uh, revolutionary forces, to um, connect and move into the peasants, uh, into the peasants' movements, um, and that's very much a, a political strategy advocated by Che Guevara again, right? Mm -hmm. So he he defended this method that should be applied universally in Latin America, which was the use of, of peasants and, and gathering peasants and the guerrilla movements in order to be able to overthrow the, overthrow the government. Of course, well, I and Las FARC and the ELN, which is another, like, Ejército de Liberación Nacional that came about in the mid-60s, many of the men who were leading these movements in Colombia were trained in Cuba. They went to Cuba, they trained, and they learned. Um, and they, I mean, it's still going on today. It's a whole other story, but these ideas are still resonating today in Colombia and it's all coming from the agrarian sector, the marginalized communities. At least in Brazil, I see this movement of a lot of these, uh, I would say this very basic claims. Um, 
coming back, for example, as I as I mentioned before, and as I mentioned in the coffee episode, um, the the distribution of land. The distribution of land is an issue in Brazil since forever, and and that uh, will see every country in Latin America. Yeah, and also in every country in Latin America. And in the sixties, this uh, the 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 discussion of like basic reforms, um, and that came in around nineteen sixty two with the um, when well. In 1961, Jean Quadras is elected. Um, he's a right-to-center um, candidate, and then he resigns in the s- late uh, late 1961. And then the pres the, the office is taken by his vice president, which is Jean Goulart, and his this he's this populist left-wing president, and he advocates for these uh, structural reforms, these basic reforms in society, and among them uh, the the partition of land. And uh, however, um, despite all these the social efforts and the bubbling of movements and the and the and the pushing for reforms, um, in 1964 we had a uh, military-backed coup uh, on April 1st, which is funny enough. It's in April 1st, April Fools, right. and um, and this uh, and which is much celebrated nowadays by a great part of the neoconservative conservative right in Brazil. Um, as a successful attempt to quash any form of, of what they call communism or socialism, which was really, um, in many cases in Brazil, not, I mean, of course, I was talking here about the more radicalized left, which came from urban centers, but the great majority of people, they were more concerned and they were voting towards these left-to-center populist candidates, they were concerned with, with basic reforms in society and not the whole revolution. So. Um, the the even the the push for social form reform that was so radicalized in the 60s wasn't even as radicalized as people try to put it nowadays yeah and so going back to what you said earlier though 60s was a turning point you think Raquel, what do you think in Ecuador was the 60s a turning point or a continuation um, no i would say it was like a, for, for sure a turning point especially well um after like during like the early 1960s to like the 61, um, the president was like Jose Maria Velasco Ibarra, and he was very much against the United States. So he, during like the Cuban Revolution, he kind of like in or like promoted his this anti-United States rhetoric. However, there was like this huge, um, I don't know, like discontent from different parts of the population, as um, they were worried that uh, Ecuador was going to keep being kind of like an ally with with Cuba, and at this time there was like this. Uh, the United States was telling all these Latin American countries to break relations, break diplomatic, political, and economic relations with uh, with Cuba because of these. Um, I don't know because they were they were afraid of like the spread of communism in in the continent. So um, this uh, then Carlos Arosemena he in the early 1961 he, he became president um, and then he um, was trying to or like he kind of like his presidency struggled with many with the support of the people because um, he had to face or like he had to make the decision between like are we still going to support Cuba or what's going to happen in I think like early 1962, Ecuador uh, broke diplomatic relations with Cuba and other countries um, in Europe. And this question about what's going on with Cuba uh, was very in- influenced 
and damage very much the relation, like the the presidency of Arasemena, uh, and then as he lost his like the support of the people and. Many were claiming that Ecuador was going to uh, become a communist country. So then in 1963, we had the Junta, so just like these, I think well, there were like four years where like uh, the military was in charge of, of the country. So for sure that was also like a pretty different from like the previous decade and where like the country was being managed by the military. Um, but it was uh, these, especially these years where it was like this time where like the students the student movements actually led a different revolt or yeah they just went out to the streets and kind of like protested because of some of the things they thought were not like the junta was not doing right about the education system so we can then talk about like the how, like the power of the students in changing the how pol like politics were being made mm -hmm. um i don't know about like the pol like the if they i don't know the student movements were like a huge uh, like if they presented a huge conflict for for the president in in, Ecuador, in Brazil or in Colombia, but in Ecuador the students were very important at this time. In 1964, also the junta proposed or like this agrarian reform, so that also affected like the land. And we can go back to the question that we were discussing about who owned the land, um, what kind of uh, system was going to rule over like the land. So. I would say it was like for sure a transition process of uh, in terms of the agrarian part but also education and the social system in, in the country. Yeah, so going back to the question of the students, I always find that in the 60s youth movements were so important. I know in Colombia the youth did play a part but it was later on. Once these, you know, like revolutionary ideas were coming into power into like the imaginary that's when the students took hold of it but i don't think they were the driving force i don't know no definitely in brazil it was the heyday of the student movements um and and as i said i think in, in the 1960s and only later in the 1990s latin america would have a surge of these um marginalized social movements among not only uh the indigenous peoples, but also women, um, social kind of uh, the middle urban class, and also actually many movements surrounding religion. And religion is one important one because, um, for example, in Brazil, um, there's this really famous um, protest that went on, um, which is called something like, which was in the early 60s, right before the dictatorship. That's called something like the the march in support of Jesus and the family okay. and it gathered uh, thousands of people and it was one of the major kind of turning points in terms of the uh, of the, uh, the popular support for the for military intervention in Brazil um, but despite all of this conservatism connected to religion the 1960s also spurred this uh, this really nice uh, religious movement called the liberation theology right yeah it was Basically, this uh, this movement of many priests, usually like lower clergymen, mm -hmm. um, which uh, they went back in the so what's it called? The, um, it's preferential preferential option for the poor, but it's called the salmon. Well, the liberation theology that really drove. Right now, I think it's the biggest guerrilla force that still exists, or one of them. 
ENN, Ejército de Liberación Nacional. Oh, it's religious. Um, yeah, so it started by Fabio Vázquez Castaño, and he was a lower clergyman, and he was very, very, like, um, enthused, like, by the liberation theology. He really wanted to work with the marginalized communities in Colombia because the way the geography is set up in Colombia is all the power has been concentrated to like three major urban centers that are all clustered together and these are very white very powerful centers and everyone else has kind of just been ignored and exploited for the resources and so his thing was kind of like to just help these communities um, and he actually was trained in cuba and he was a uh, like a, a big marxist and he was like one of the leaders, the founders of that movement, um, along with Las Farcas in Colombia and I'm sure in all the other countries, it just wasn't one girl movement, one thing. Um, this was his and it started in 1965, 1964, and it's, it's still in power today, although I wouldn't say it has the same ideologies as it used to, but yeah, that was the biggest one. So going back and explaining liberation theology, it's this idea that backs and, and it's the back the backbone of this idea is for the preferential option for the poor, and it's um, uh, this idea that lower clergymen in the in the, in the hierarchies of, of this church are are in community um, with um, the people for for which they are preaching. They would see priests as responsible for showing the actual social reality. Um, surrounding the the people for each of their preaching, and and it, and they have uh, a really important movement with these with these peasant collectives and the peasant leagues in Brazil, and and in particular with most progressive and left wing movements because it had such an appeal in Brazil and particularly of, of, among among the masses, um, given the uh, the importance of Catholicism in the region. Yeah, so I'm just reading here that. If we look at the Ten Commandments, they said that the inequalities that the people in Latin America were facing were due to greed, and we know greed is a sin. So that was kind of the the crux of the religious aspect, the sin, and that the poor are actually just like a channel of God's grace, and God enacts His goodness through the poor people because they're free of that. So I think that's really interesting how, you know, you were saying religion has like typically been used as a conservative force and then there's this theology that goes against it but was it accepted by the mainstream catholic church is what i'm wondering like in latin america during the 60s or was it just that one radical sect well in in, in brazil it definitely had uh, a major importance in the government because of the figure of, of paulo freire and he's this um world-renowned um pedagogue and academic um, that in the 19, actually 1960 was the was the year that he published uh, the pe the pedagogy of the oppressed, and that's a a, a major work in, in critical um, pedagogy and critical education, and his his principles were very much a mix between the 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 progressive feeling and the the social revolutionary spirit that Latin America was embodying in the moment, but also the religious and the theological side, and he he sided many times with liberation the, uh, theologians and his and his and his idea was to 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 join these two practices in a, in a humanist um, form of education and he presents this like dualism between um, the colonial subject being oppressed and the colonizer as the oppressor and he he puts this within a Marxist lens this idea that well you also had the economic subjugation of the oppressed 
and with that, the alienation of cultures and the imposition of religion by colonials. Um, so he outlines this historical process as one between this clash between the oppressed and the oppressor. And to do so, he, as an antidote for this issue, he says that education should be the foundational aspect. And in doing so, he, he promoted many educational um, programs in Brazil, including in 1962, where he had this um, major national um, literacy program that was launched um, based on his principles. So uh, that was a moment in Brazil where you had this, uh, this push for de developmentalism um, from part of the state. And uh, one of these, the major aspects was education. So getting the literacy to the masses, to the peasants, to the poor. So it was really this, this movement from the urban classes towards uh, the rural poor and trying to give them more, a little bit more attention, given the whole tensions and social intricacies of the 60s. I find that really interesting going back to, you know, US interve interventionism. One of the mandates of the Alliance for Progress progress was to raise and eliminate adult illiteracy. So I wonder if that decision by Brazil was influenced by that alliance, because I know Brazil did pledge money to the alliance, or I don't know. I well, so the, thing is, yeah. the, the thing with uh, the Brazilian government is that in the beginning of 1962, João Goulart was only able to um, rise to presidency because um, he accepted initially a, parla uh, a, a parliamentary, demo parliamentary democracy mm -hmm. um, in uh, late 1961. Uh, because what happened was when Jeanne Quadros, which was the actual elected president, um, resigned, uh, guess what? Jeanne Quadros was in communist China. <laughs> so that didn't work out well for him. <laughs> and he. Uh, and then there was this major crisis, and then uh, the Brazilian parliament decided to. to um, uh, create a parliamentary system in which he was still the president, but then Tancredo Neves, which is this other massive political figure in Brazil, um, which was considered a stabilizing force, he was he was put in place as um, as prime minister. Although in nineteen the the following year there was a referendum, and then um, everything was kind of uh, backtracked, and then Jânio Quadros again had the whole kind of power. Um, which means that he, as a center-to-left populist at the time, he was very much focused in the non-aligned non movements, he, he allied with them. And uh, this, most of his movements, although trying to appease and trying to uh, stabilize the many conservative forces already emerging from the Brazilian middle class, he, uh, he was still very much aligned with progressive elements in society. Uh, which mean, which meant he was definitely placed as a, a an enemy by the U.S. And in fact, uh, the U.S. ambassador in Brazil, um, Lincoln Gordon, he's a very famous figure because he uh, he basically just spilled it all out later, and he said that yeah, the 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 Americans were funding elect uh, the electoral candidates they were competing against uh, most left wing um, parties in Brazil, including. Uh, João Goulart, and later support actively supported the military dictatorship to the point of sending like battleships um, to the coast of Rio, and um, so then so the the U.S. from since this uh, kind of this the 1960-1961 period in Brazil was already already had vested interests in 
um, was already working within his political machinations, mainly with the CIA, and that's openly known. Like that's actually reported and documented and uh, and revised. And they were they were actively moving against these popular forces. Um, I don't know exactly what the what are the same movements of the U.S. and other countries. Um, I'm thinking about we were saying that these um, like the early 1960s are like a turning point for like the I don't know like the history of, of Latin America, and it's very interesting the the power that the United States had over many many of the Latin American countries um, during the junta or like the first dictatorship that we had in, in the 60s. The, the military, they tried to, as I explained before, they implemented the agrarian reform to end the Wasipungo system, which mainly kind of like affected the poor peasant workers. But at the end, this idea of like them trying to help the poor peasant workers didn't end up happening. So the poor peasant workers remain poor peasant workers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just I'm just thinking about how these or like ideas of the United States by fa- by having power or by influencing the presidency of like in the, in Ecuador in the case of the junta but in in Brazil or in Colombia how these how the United States try to be part of like the political system in our countries but how the ideas or like how how well done were these programs or these ideas the United States had. So like these ideas of like development and helping the poor peasant workers and ending with um, or like making sure that everyone is able to read and everyone has access to public education. Um, I'm just wondering how how effective were these measures taken by the different presidents that we had over, over the time um, and how these, yeah, I'm just wondering how effective these measures these policies were in our regions? Because, at least in Brazil, the American soft power was really creeping in from just since the middle 50s, since the mid 50s. And like that's with like American movies, American uh, music. In Brazil, you have this uh, Jovem Guarda movement in the kind of middle to late 60s, which is basically Beatlemania, Brazil version. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, but the, the, the so-called Chanchada movies in the 50s, in the late 40s and throughout the 50s and the early 60s, that is the classic portrayal of Brazil as like the tropical, beautiful country, palm trees um, in Rio and Copacabana and all these things. So in a way, we had this uh, in the '60s. You had this outward projection of Brazil in this really negative, trop- like tropicalist, humanitarian way. And as an exchange, we got this the, the kind of U.S. mass culture and, and U.S. soft power. Mm-hmm. And as as a gift, together with it, a, <laughs> the political and diplomatic force um, of the yeah. U.S. under its belt. Um, well, to answer your question, Raquel, I think there's two things I want to consider. It's first. It's weird to me, the U.S. had all these plans, right? But mostly, I mean, Colombia, they were squashed because the people who were supporting these, you know, like movements to like to strengthen the rural communities and all that were communist, like radical groups. So and what happened in Colombia, it's that in the early 60s, as I said before, they were going through that national front coalition, that back and forth between the liberals and conservatives. and. They, the, the front really wanted to enact economic and social reform, but since none of them had really consolidated their power within the Colombian population, not much got done. And then there was an economic crisis. 
So the role of the U.S. in this situation was more to like silence the radicals than to silence the government. And the government and Colombia like really worked together at this point. They weren't in opposition. Um, I know in 1964, the U.S. actually sent like troops and planes to attack Marquetania, where Manuel Marunanda was. Um, and they sent them into hiding, and that's what started the civil war. Mm-hmm. And they've been there ever since, so it's not really been a, a question of how the U.S. kind of impeded the Colombian government. It's kind of how they worked together in a twisted way at the same time to squash these communist rebels. At the same time, Colombia was is incredibly in debt to the U.S. So they kind of have to go along with what the U.S. wants at this point. Um, I think their foreign aid, like, expenditure, whatever, I'm not too sure what the word is called, tripled between 1961 and 1962. So their debt tripled to the U.S. In that sense, that's the role that the U.S. really played there. In the Brazilian case, it's it's very clear the shift that that happened from the left-wing populist government to the military dictatorship. And even before the populist government, it was initially this the this developmentalist wave tied to nationalism um, from Getúlio Vargas and Juscelino Kubitschek. These are all president presidents, um, very famous and, and influential figures. Um, but in this case of 1964 in Brazil, it feels like it's a very definite like American drop mm-hmm. that just like completely changed and framed the, uh, the 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 debate. Although of course like. The, there was still extensive debate of whether the military would have um, taken over and would have taken the government in 1964 if the U.S. wasn't backing it. But the but let's not forget that the U.S. is not the only kind of emerging conservative force. Um, in, in at least in Brazil, you had this major increase in the urban middle classes that were very important and were beginning to be. The kind of the, the, the major political factor in, in Brazilian demo, um, democratic politics, and and you had these all these very interesting major shifts in politics from one year to the other. For example, in 1961, you had the the shifting from the capital from Rio to Brasilia. So, Brasilia was finally created out of nothing in the middle of uh, the Brazilian uh, uh, highlands. So there was these, although there was a clear shift um, from neo nationalism back to populism, but then this this populist wave is completely quashed by the military dictatorship, and so this that's why in Brazil up to nowadays the discussion about the U.S. seems very clear, um, and and seems very like this it's very black and white and two sided because um, the the I think the military take takeover was such a shifting and determining point in politics that it defined sides and it defined sides up to nowadays up to the point that like these the story that we're telling right now and the one that I'm telling about Brazil is a is a story that's very much contested and um, some people from the left and some major politicians in the left nowadays um, case of Lula for example sees uh, the military dictatorship exactly as this this counter-hegemonic force that completely barred politics and that um, and that uh, the progressive wave in Brazil and Brazil was finally going to get there and become the country of the future and all the reforms were going to be actually implemented but then these were all crushed down by the military government 
um, while the opposite spin is exactly, well, revolution and assassination and anarchy was going to be um, imposed by a Brazilian communist state, and now the military dictatorship was able to establish order. Um, so I wonder if, 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 how are the echoes in this, from the 60s in your current politics, if there are any? I guess Colombia is pretty easy. We'll start there. The civil war that started in the 60s is ongoing. There, I mean, 2016, there was peace treaties. Uh, has it officially stopped? That's very contested. So I... And we are talking about ELN, and ELN yeah, is ELN, still active. ELN, actually, just, they were quiet for a bit, and I think it was a couple months ago, they took up arms again. <sighs> the 60s, wow. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's echoing. It's so important right now in Colombian politics. Um, with the movements that have just happened, Colombia hasn't really seen these giant social movements that other Latin American countries have, but just recently we had those demonstrations and people are angry and people want reform and people want change. And they're really going back to these these original ideas and this didn't even start in the 60s in, in Colombia. As I said, La Violencia was a period of violence, of bipartisan violence that started in the 40s with the assassination of a liberal leader. Um, people say it's not don't quote me on this that that was backed by the u.s um so it parallels a lot what's going what happened in brazil so a lot of people point to that they say wow colombia could have been this great progressive country of gaitan had ever taken power but other people do not see it that way um so the 60s are incredibly important in colombia and uh they will continue being so oh, yeah okay and i just want to add um as i said there's this civil war is ongoing but I, I just want to point out that although the civil war is ongoing, it's it's transformed in so many ways. So I wouldn't say this is a Marxist struggle that's been going on for 60 some years. What is it now? I can't do math. Um, but it, it's gotten a lot complicated with the whole issue of drug trafficking and all the power and the violence and what used to be like the liberation theology has turned into kidnapping and torture and child soldiers. Um, so that, that has really demonized the whole idea of communism and the left and socialism in Latin America. Because you think of communists and you think of these terrible tortures and atrocities and violence that happens. And that's being echoed today. So that's when I say there hasn't been huge socialist movements in Colombia, that's not to negate all the beautiful movements that have happened throughout the years, but I'm saying, was there ever a change in that direction in leadership? No, because of the, the the nuances of the violence that's happened. And these were the things that we actually, uh, I actually proposed to echo today. Echo today was the importance of the 60s in Latin America as this transformational change. And of course, we wouldn't, we weren't able to talk about everything that we can, that we wanted to talk about in all the countries in Latin America in the 60s. But this idea is just to give the, the idea of this podcast is just to give a small introduction to people. I question whether these historical references that are made by many of the, the politicians that that are that represent us nowadays, um, where do they come from and, and, and what, what, what do they mean exactly for the region. So that's why it's important to talk about the historical moments in the 60s and of course the effects of the Cuban revolutions in Latin America. And with that, I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave it for today. Um, my quick reminder is that El Cafecito is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. And I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Chaito, bye.